Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Hello, podcast listeners. I hope you're enjoying your day as much as I am currently enjoying my day. You know, it's been interesting to be able to look at these articles these last couple of days, and there's been a little trend that's been happening, at least from what I'm noticing. One of those trends that are starting to appear right now is the fact that they're that they're starting to talk a little bit more about green energy companies in Wall Street in particular. Okay. This comes at a time where for the past few months, that's all they were talking about was oil. And now it seems like they're trying to get the focus back on green energy potentially because maybe their goal is hopefully that since Russia and Ukraine wars, potentially it's still happening, obviously, but eventually the war would have to end. And maybe their bet is when it ends, they want to be ready to capitalize on the shift that's going to happen between oil to green energy. Though I personally don't think that's going to really happen in the end. It's still an interesting thing to look at because we're going to be talking about a lot about these green energy potential projects that are coming about. Okay. First off today, we're going to be talking about how Meta Horizons Vice President Vivek Sharma is leaving the company. What does that mean potentially for Facebook? Okay. The EV makers are facing a cash squeeze amid the soaring battery production costs. And and when we get into this topic with the EV battery, we're going to probably finish the day just talking about the green energy sector that CNBC is currently talking about, at least on their articles. Okay, BlackRock just invested about $700 million into a company in Australia that's helping them with battery storage, I believe it was. Yeah, battery storage in Australia. Norway's to invest about... I can't remember the exact number, but they're they're planning to invest a little bit more into an Indian solar company. And we'll read into that details of that article when the time comes. And finally, Japan is pivoting to a more nuclear power and why the IEA says that's actually good news in the making that Japan's going back to nuclear. With that being said, like I always said at the beginning of each podcast, I'm not a professional advisor in any way, shape or form. And I cannot legally give you any financial advice. You need to go talk to your own professional advisor before making any financial decisions on your investments. This whole point of this podcast is for information purposes and for entertainment for those who wish to listen to this podcast. I also ask too that before you make any financial decisions that you go talk to your professional advisor as they would understand your financial situation a lot better than I would. Like I said earlier, I cannot legally give you any financial advice and everything I express on this podcast is my personal opinion. And it's also based off the articles that we read on this podcast. With that, let's begin today's podcast. The key key leader for Meta's Metaverse software is leaving the company. The vice president of Meta Horizon social media virtual reality software, Vivek Sharma, is leaving the company, a spokesperson said Friday. Sharma has been with Facebook parent Meta for the past six years, holding high-ranking positions in marketplace and gaming. And most recently, it's nascent Metaverse-related business unit. As VP of Horizon, Sharma, who's been who's based in the Seattle area, oversaw various VR projects such as Horizon Worlds, social media service, which is akin to online game Second Life that has been retrofitted to virtual reality. Other Horizon products include the VR-based workplace collaboration app Horizon Worksroom and Horizon Venues app for live events, which has moved into the core world apps this summer. Thanks to his leadership, the Horizon product group has built a strong team with ambitious visions, and it's getting started. 
A Meta spokesperson said in a statement, Meta continues to be a source of developing great leaders and we're excited to see where Vivek accomplishes in his next chapter. The spokesperson added, the Horizon team will now directly report to uh, Vish, Vishal Sheha, Meta's VP of the Metaverse. Meta is betting into the metaverse a collection of digital worlds that people can access the VR and relate augmented reality technologies represents the next frontier of computing. Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg said in a recent episode of the Joe Rogan Experience podcast that his company would debut a new VR headset in October, which in the month that Meta typical holds and the connected VR conference. I mean, it's hard to say what's going to happen with Facebook going forward. I mean, we know we've read in past articles that Facebook has been spending a lot of money into the metaverse and it hasn't resulted in the results that Wall Street's been looking for. But the metaverse does have a lot of interesting components in the making for it, okay? For example, Lowe's is planning to use it so you can be able to look at how your design of your building's gonna look like when you wanna build it in the metaverse, which is actually a really smart idea because that could potentially give, when you're building your building and you're in construction, it'll give you an idea of what you need to get and how much it might potentially cost to build it. I could see other projects potentially doing the same thing. Maybe car companies can use it as well. But the metaverse is going to be potentially a bigger thing in the making. Now, granted, there will be people who use it just to escape from reality, which can be creepy at times because, at least in the VR chat world currently right now, VR chat sometimes, depending on what you're using, can feel a little bit more realistic at times, at least, at least some of the games that some friends and I have played with sometimes in the past. But the metaverse is going to eventually look pretty real compared to our real world too. I mean, it takes time to develop the software. I mean, if you were to look at video games from the 90s, video games in the 90s were very pixelated. And obviously over time, they've evolved to where they look more realistic now. But give it time too, and the metaverse will probably end up looking the same way as well. But it's going to be interesting to see what Facebook does going forward with this individual having to step down from the company. Maybe it has to do with what's happening with Facebook. Kind of doubt it though. Maybe he just wants to move on to other things, but it's going to be interesting to see where Facebook continues to go with this metaverse and what they plan to do with it. Now we're going to finish today's podcast by only talking about the green energy sector. Cash is king for EV makers as soaring battery prices drive up vehicle production costs. Okay. From CNBC and the transition from gas powered vehicles to electric the fuel everywhere automakers is after these days is cold, hard cash. Established automakers and startups alike are rolling out new battery-powered models in an effort to meet growing demand, ramping up production of a new model that's already a fraught and expensive process. But rising material costs and tricky regulations for federal incentives are squeezing coffers even further. Price of the raw materials used in many electric vehicle batteries, lithium, nickel, and cobalt, have soared over the last two years as demand has skyrocketed and it may be several years before the miners are able to meaningfully increase supply. Complicating the situation further, the, the new U.S. rules governing EV buyer incentives will require automakers to source more of, its, of those materials in North America over time if they want their vehicles to qualify. The results? New cost pressures for what have already an expensive process. Automakers routinely spend hundreds of millions of dollars designing and installing tooling to build new high-volume vehicles before a single new car is shipped, Nearly all global automakers now maintain hefty cash reserves of $20 billion or more. Those reserves exist to ensure that the companies can continue to work on their new mo- models if, when a recession or pandemic, takes a bite out of their sales and profits for a few quarters. All that money and time 
can be a risky bet if the new model doesn't resonate with customers or if the manufacturer problems delay its introduction or compromise quality. The automakers might not make enough to cover what is spent. The newer automakers, the financial risk to design a new electric vehicle can be existential. Take Tesla. When the automaker began preparations to launch its Model 3, CEO Elon Musk and his team planned a highly automated production line for the Model 3 with robots and specialized machines that reported costs well over a billion dollars. But some of the automation didn't work, as expected, and Tesla moved some final assembly task to a tent outside its factory. Tesla learned a lot from the expensive lessons in the process. Musk said later called the expensive launching the Model 3 production hell and said that nearly brought Tesla to the brink of bankruptcy. As nearly as newer EV startups ramp up production, more investors are leaning and taking car design to production is capital intensive. And in its current environment where deflated stock prices or rising interest rates have made it harder to raise money than it ever was two years ago, EV startups cash balance are getting close attention from Wall Street, okay? Here's some of the cash balance seats currently right now, these EV makers, okay? Rivian in particular currently has about, according to the article, has over 15 billion on hand. So not bad for Rivian right now, okay? Uh, Lucid, Lucid has about 4.6 billion in cash on hand and it's down, down from 5.4 billion at the end of March. So at least they have some cash on hand. Fisker apparently has about 852 million on hand currently right now. Uh, Nicola has about... 312 million on hand, actually correction, 529 on hand as the end of June, plus another 312 million available via an equity line from Tumen Stone Capital. Okay. Lordstown. Lordstown has about 258 million cash on hand. And that that's pretty much all the automakers that they're talking about. Cash will be king going forward. Okay. But it's also interesting to point out that they're saying it's hard that there's such a demand for the lithium batteries, but we've talked about in past podcasts about how in South America, there's actually places in South America that have more lithium mines and the potential in the making than China does. In reality, it's just not being able to get to the lithium mines in reality. That's what it's boiling down to. But it's also interesting too, because with this EV market in the making right now, BlackRock made some moves. Now, granted, this article is over two weeks old, but it's still important to cover. Okay, it says BlackRock makes 700 million investment in Australian battery storage. Okay, it says a fund under the management of BlackRock Real Assets is set to acquire Acacia Energy, an Australian firm that develops battery storage and renewable energy projects. In the announcement Tuesday, BlackRock said it mentioned to commit to excessive of 1 billion Australian dollars, and that's around 700 million, of capital to support the build-out of more than one gigawatt of battery storage assets. Looking ahead, BlackRock said Acacia had plans to develop energy storage projects in the range of the Asia-Pacific markets, including Japan and Taiwan, in the near term. Affected large-scale storage systems are set to become increasingly important as renewable energy capacity expands. This is because while sources of energy such as the sun and wind are renewable, they are not consistent. The international energy agencies have said that a rapid scale of energy storage is critical to meet flexible needs in a decarbonized electricity system. According to the IEA, investment in battery storage grew by nearly 40% in 2020, reaching 5.5 billion. Figures from the Australian government show that fossil fuels accounted for 76% of total electricity generation in 2020, with coal shares coming in at 54%, gas at 20%, and oil at 2%. 
renewable share came in at about 24%. In April, Australia's Department of Industry, Science, Energy, and Resources said renewables responsible for an estimate 77,716 gigawatt hours of electricity generation in the calendar year for 2021. This works out about 29% of total electricity generation. In a speech last month, the country's prime minister, Anthony Albanis, said that the challenge of climate change is an opportunity going forward that we must seize to indeed become a renewable energy superpower. Yeah, curious to know how Australia is going to be able to pull that off. But it's interesting that BlackRock just dropped all this money into this, okay? Which means potentially batteries are going to be even higher demand, especially between the combination of batteries that are going to be able to store the energy and batteries that are used in electric vehicles, demand is going to be up, okay? Now, remember this too. If you live in California, Governor Newsom just signed a law saying that potentially there won't be any more gas vehicles in California by 2035, or at least no new gas vehicles, which I'm curious to know if Newsom has realized that he just destroyed the Prius market because Prius are half electric, half gas. So hopefully he realizes that. But this is where things need to tie in a little bit, okay? It says here later in the article that we're reading from BlackRock, it says in July, Norway, Norway's Equinor said it acquired U.S.-based battery storage developer East Point Energy after signing an agreement to take 100% stake in the company. Equinor, a major producer of oil and gas, said Charlottesville headquarter East Point Energy had about 4.1 gigalite pipeline of early to mid-stage battery storage projects focused on the U.S. East Coast. The company said battery storage would play an important role in the energy transition as the world increased its share of intermittent renewable power. Battery storage is key to enabling further penetration of renewables, can contribute to stabilizing power markets, and improve the security of supply, it added. What's Norway doing? In, in all seriousness, like Norway has been making some moves recently between that company buying the energy battery company in the United States. And I believe we did talk about it briefly, but it's hard to remember. We record so much here on this on this podcast and the news is constantly updating. But now there's this too. Norway just recently bought, well, not Norway in particular, but another company in Norway just made a move into the green energy sector in India. Okay. It says oil and gas powerhouse Norway to invest in India solar projects sees country as a priority market. Okay. Norway Climate Investment Fund, the country's biggest pension company, KLP, are set to invest a 420 megawatt solar power project uh, begin developed in Rajasthan, India. I believe some of my podcast listeners are from there. I'm sorry if I offended by saying your your area wrong. Please forgive me. Says the two parties will invest around 2.8 billion of India rupees, or roughly around 35 million, for a 49% stake in the Thar. They are Sura One project, which is being constructed by Italian firm Enel Green Power. According to an announcement from the Norwegian Embassy in India, the Climate Investment Fund is slated to allocate 10 billion Norwegian krone, or approximately 1 billion, to project over the next five years. The embassy also described India, which is on track to become the planet's most populous country next year. That's good to know. They're going to be passing China. Good to know. As a priority market. That comes as Norway developed financial institution Norfund, which manages the Climate Investment Fund, and Enel Green Power have established an Indian-focused strategy investment partnership. This is the first investment we are making with Enel, and together we have great ambitions to contribute with similar investments in India in the years to come. Telfi 
CEO of Norfund, said in a statement issued Monday. While investing in renewable energy projects, Norway's oil and gas reserves make it a major exporter of fossil fuels. In recent years, Norway has supplied between 20 to 25% of the EU and United Kingdom gas demand. Norwegian Petroleum says nearly all oil and gas production on the Norwegian shelf is exported and combined oil and gas exceeds half of the total value of Norwegian exports of goods. It adds, you know, maybe that's what Germany needs to do is just turn to Norway and say, we need more gas and oil. But it's also funny too, that they don't even mention that in other articles in the past. We've read so many articles about how Germany is going to be struggling with oil and gas this winter. And apparently Norway exports almost all of it. It says nearly, I'll read it again, nearly all oil and gas produce of the Norwegian shelf is exported and combined oil and gas excludes half of the total value of Norwegian exports of goods it's added. Okay. Now, going back to the article about India, India Minister of New and Renewable Energy says that over the past seven and a half years, the country's solar capacity has increased from around 2.6 gigawatts to over 46 gigawatts. India wants its renewable energy capacity, excluding large hydro, to hit 175 uh, gigawatts this year, a challenging target. On June 30th, installed renewable energy capacity, excluding large hydro, stood at 100 and 14.07 gigawatts, according to a recent statement from the Indian Minister of State for New and Renewable Energy. Despite its renewable energy goals, India remains resilient on fossil fuels. At the end of June, fossil fuels shared that India's total installment generation capacity stood at 58.5%, according to the Ministry of Power. This is also the same India that's buying Russian oil for $30 a barrel currently right now. wonder why they don't mention that. At the last year's COP26 climate change summit india and china both among the world's biggest burners of coal insisted on last minute change of fossil fuel language in the glasgow climate pact from a phase out of coal to a phase down after initial productions opposing countries ultimately conceded Hmm. funny how they don't mention that whenever we hear about this in the united states about how we're such a destroying that the united states is destroying the environment and apparently they just they had the last minute change of fossil fuel language in the Glasgow Climate Pact. Maybe we need to look at that one day. It says during a speech delivered to the Energy and Resources Institution World Sustainable Development Summit in February 2022, Indian Prime Minister uh, Modi said that he firmly believed that the environment's sustainability can only be achieved through climate justice. Okay. And then, of course, there's some European interest. This is Norwegian interest in India's renewable energy sector represents the latest example of major organizations and businesses making the play into the country. Yeah, there's a lot of moves heading into India currently right now. India could potentially be the next China in the making, especially if the article's correct that they're supposed to be the biggest population in the making soon. Sounds like they're about ready to surpass China, but the news hasn't fully confirmed that. But at the same time, maybe... Maybe just companies are just getting ready to move to India. I mean, we've talked about, I know we have talked about this in the past, that Dairy Queen is looking to go into India. And I believe it was Starbucks as well. Or maybe Starbucks was always been told that years ago from past research of listening to articles and reading about it. But they're they're making moves into India, getting ready for that potential shift. Maybe India becomes the next superpower in the making as well. That's a weird thought to think about because then you have India and China that are literally right next to each other. And China's probably not going to like that at all. But that's a thought for another day. Last article we're going to read about the green energy here. It says Japan is pivoting back to nuclear after Fukushima disaster. And the IEA says it's help, it could help with, with cool gas markets. Japanese plans to pivot back to 
sorry, Japanese plans to pivot back to using more nuclear power have been welcomed by the International Energy Agency, with one of the organization directors telling CNBC it represents a very good and encouraging news. On Wednesday, the Prime Minister of Japan said his country would restart more idle nuclear power plants and look into feasible of developing next-gen reactors. Uh, Kishida's comments, which were reported by Rudders, built upon remarks he made back in May. They come at a time when Japan, a big importer of energy, is looking to bolster its options amid ongoing uncertainty in global energy markets and the war between Russia and Ukraine. Speaking to CNBC Squawk in the Box Europe Thursday morning, uh, Kaisuki Sadamori, who is a director of the IEA's Office for Energy Markets and Security, was positive about Japan's strategy. Quote, that is very good and encouraging news, both in terms of energy supply, uh, security, and climate change uh, mitigation, he said. Adding that Japan has been burning a lot of fossil fuels in order to fill the gap from the lack of nuclear power since the Fukushima accident. Fossil fuel markets, in particular natural gas markets, were very tight, Sanamori explained, noting that this was especially the case in Europe. This restart Japanese nuclear power could be in good terms of freeing up substantial amounts of LNG to the global market, he said. Sanamori has previously held positions in Japan Ministry of Economy, Trade and Industry, and as executive assistant to the previous Japanese Prime Minister in 2011. He was asked about the time frame for the construction of new nuclear plants. The new bills, he replied, would take a long time. I understand that the announcement by Prime Minister Minister uh, Kishida yesterday was focusing more on the types of nuclear power plants, including SMRs, small modular reactors. They're still in basically a developing stage, so we need to accelerate those developments, he added. The more significant aspects were, he argued, the restart of existing plants and the existence of existing plants' lifetime. Okay, last thing we'll read before we end today's podcast. Okay, it says here, the big shift. In a fully realized, the moves begin planned by Japan were a represent of the turnaround of the country's energy policy following 2011's Fukushima's disaster when a powerful earthquake and tsunami resulted in the meltdown of the plant's Fukushima nuclear power plant. Given its recent history, the IEA Satomori was asked about certain public sentiment in Japan towards nuclear, and he says, quote, that's the most difficult part, he said, adding that Japanese people still have some concerns about safety. Citing different energy market situations as well as Japan's very tight electric market, Satomori said public sentiment in the country was nevertheless changing a little. And then the article goes on to say that Japan's planning to be carbon neutral by 2050 under an ambitious outlook, its strategic energy plan envisions renewables accounting for 36% to 38% of its power generation and mixed in 2030. Okay. And there was something about too, about how, oh, it says here about Greenpeace. This is interesting. It says critics include Greenpeace. Nuclear power is touted as a solution to our energy problem, but in reality, it's complex and hugely expensive to build. The Environment Organization website states, quote, it also creates huge amount of hazardous waste. It adds renewable energy is cheaper and can be installed quickly Together with battery storage, it can generate the power we need to slash our emissions. Even though renewable energy is cheaper, it to me, it doesn't seem like to be the answer, okay? If renewable energy is cheaper and it can be installed quickly, doesn't that also mean it's prone to break faster, okay? I mean, don't get me wrong. There will be someone eventually soon who's going to figure out how to turn that nuclear waste into a resource, it's only a matter of time. You just need some really smart scientists on this, okay? Because it says here with Europe too, it says, well, Europe has massive offshore wind resources. Japan was less endowed with good renewable resources in that respect. I think each country is going to end up doing what it needs to do in order to survive, especially during this time. We've read recently that oil markets are probably going to be high for the next, was it decade? 10 years, I think. 
And if that's the case, then you, we're going to have to look at other energy sources potentially in order to survive this energy crisis that's going to be happening. And nuclear seems to be the best answer. Now, granted, you can have nuclear meltdowns, but if you put things in the right order, those nu- nuclear meltdowns can be prevented. Okay. But that's a topic for a whole other day. I'm curious to know if if we do go down this route, though, just how much batteries are going to cost. How much are cars going to cost, though? I mean, like I said at the beginning of this podcast, there's a lot of articles about the EV batteries, what companies are making moves in. And then Japan's announcing that they're going back to nuclear at a time where other countries are hesitant of using nuclear power. It's going to be interesting to see what happens at the end of the day with all these countries, with their energy policies in the making. And maybe CNBC will actually report it when the time comes. We'll be able to talk about it. But right now, the push right now, it seems like, is to push for more green energy right now for investors to potentially look at green energy. I don't know if it's a trap. I still firmly believe that there are some politicians out there that probably have a lot of money invested in green energy and are looking to cash in when the time comes. It's just a thought. Not a conspiracy theorist, just just a thought, okay? Because they do make a lot of push for these green energy policies. But it should be interesting to see what happens in the next few years with energy. And we're going to keep reporting as much as we can. But I would potentially look into some green energy companies if that is something you're into. Not financial advice, obviously, but never know. Money can be made anywhere, but I'm just curious to know how much energy might go up in price if that were to happen. So just thoughts. And I'm just here to report currently and just talk about it. So with that being said, guys, thank you so much for listening to this podcast. I hope you've had enjoyed it. If you had, please like, and subscribe to this podcast as every like and subscription that we get can help grow this podcast so we can be able to keep talking about events that are happening on Wall Street and what Wall Street's not always willing to talk about currently. I also ask that you please share with friends or family as every time you share with friends or family, they might be able to enjoy this podcast as well. And we, like I said, we can be able to keep growing this podcast. I mean, I have goals of what I would like this podcast to look like one day, but it takes time to build this up. And with your help, we can help grow it a lot faster. With that being said, thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast today. Thank you and goodbye.